Hello, and welcome to the third episode of The Dig Presents, our new documentary series. If you've been enjoying the series, please tell other people about it. You can find all of the episodes of The Dig Presents on the regular Dig feed and also on a special feed that is just for this series. Look up The Dig Presents. If, say, you have a friend who, for whatever strange reason, does not want to listen to a typical two-hour Dig interview but does like powerful storytelling, share The Dig Presents feed with them. And if you have not listened to our first two episodes yet, go check them out. They're really good. We do hope to order a second season of The Dig Presents, but these stories do cost quite a bit more to put together than a standard Dig interview, and so that means that we need to raise a bit more in monthly Patreon donations to keep The Dig Presents up and running for a second season. Our goal is to raise $1,000 more in monthly donations, which only gets us about a quarter of the way to fully covering costs, but it's enough for me to order a second season. Right now, we've made it almost a third of the way there. And so if you like what we're doing here at The Dig, and particularly at The Dig Presents, and want to keep it going, please contribute now at patreon.com slash the dig. We also have mugs, tote bags, and books to send listeners here in the U.S. who contribute at least $10 a month. Listeners anywhere who donate any amount at all get our excellent weekly newsletter delivered to your email inbox. Please contribute. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. There is a link in the show notes. Click it. Okay, this week's episode is about Jonestown. You've probably heard about the cult, the colony in Guyana, the abusive messianic leader, and, of course, the Kool-Aid and the mass suicide. But there's a lot that usually gets left out of that story. Last year, reporter Babette Thomas went home to visit their family in Oakland, and they started digging into a side of Jonestown they'd never heard about before. Here's Babette. This is Bixby Park. This was our childhood park. And I also, as I said, had your first birthday here in the same clubhouse that I grew up in. I'm driving around with my mom in San Francisco. This isn't something that happens very often. Not since I was seven or eight years old. George McQuillister lived right there. He sold the house. I saw him at dad's funeral. The Gray family that I was so fond of. They were a family of boys. There were about five of them lived in the Beige house. They were such neat people. God, I love that family. Mom doesn't come to San Francisco unless she has to, even though it's only a 30-minute drive away. She grew up in Ingleside. It's an area towards the southern part of the city. She says it's too painful to come here because it's changed so much since she was a kid. She grew up in the late 50s and early 60s, coming from a massive middle-class black Creole family who had ties throughout the city. We start driving down her old block, Roston Street. She points out the names of every single person who lived in the houses that we passed by. 186 Roston Street lived here until I was 23. Alice and Leo Lewis. They lived here. As a daily ritual, Alice used to pour ammonia down the stairs. And that was a common practice for black people from New Orleans. That was part of killing the evil spirits. So every day, we woke up to the smell of ammonia. Pumpkin, Tapia, T-A-P-I-A, lived here. The Stewart family, oh gosh. I was very close with Kathy Stewart. 
the Stewart family lived here, Mabel and Stu Stewart. Mabel passed when you were three months old. She moved from this location, however, back in the 60s, stayed in touch with her family. I think my mom's complicated feelings about San Francisco are also about just how much happened here on this very block when she was a kid. She was the second youngest of five siblings born to a single mom. And her family existed on this long political spectrum from black business owners and politicians to members of the Black Panther Party. When my mom talks about growing up in San Francisco, she talks about the political whirlwind that was happening there in the 60s. My mom's sister, my aunt Demira, was 10 years older than her and joined the Black Panther Party at 18. The FBI thought my Aunt Demira looked a bit like Kathleen Cleaver, so agents would spend long hours parked outside her childhood home. All of my mom's siblings would eventually become visitors at the Nation of Islam Mosque Number 26. And mom's father, my grandfather, owned a jazz club called The Playpen in the Fillmore. And with acts like Miles Davis, Etta James, and Sly and the Family Stone, it was a place for black folks to gather. There was a cultural and political awakening happening in the Black community in the city, and my mom was there to bear witness to it all. But when my mom told me these stories when I was a kid, she never brought up People's Temple. The People's Temple was a predominantly Black church active in San Francisco during the 70s, at the same time that my mom attended the Nation of Islam as a visitor. They were actually on the same block. Starting in the mid-70s, congregants of People's Temple migrated to Guyana to create an anti-racist socialist village called Jonestown. That's the part you've probably heard of. In 1978, over 900 congregants were coerced into what has been called the largest murder-suicide in American history, under the order of the church's leader, Jim Jones. When most people talk about Jonestown, they usually describe them as a bizarre cult who followed some delusional man to somewhere in Guyana. And when I think of cults, the image that usually comes to mind for me are white people with blonde, wispy hair. But actually, most of the people who went to Jonestown were black, and lots of them were congregants from People's Temple in the Fillmore. So when I learned about all of this a year ago, I started asking my mom questions. When my mom was a teenager, People's Temple fit right into this orbit of Black political and religious life in the Fillmore. Government and city officials like Harvey Milk, Willie Brown, and then-Governor Jerry Brown supported the church. The temple led anti-eviction marches, they championed Angela Davis's campaign for freedom, and they also supported the American Indian movement. There are these old photos where you can actually see members of People's Temple crowding around Mosque Number 26, where my mom attended. As we drive away from Ingleside towards the Fillmore, I think about all those people going missing. I try to imagine what it must have felt like for the people who were left behind. Mom seems reluctant to talk about Jonestown, as most people are. I ask her if she knew anybody who died in the massacre. She says no. They were all lost souls. But I keep pressing her, asking if she's sure if there's nobody in the family associated with the temple. And that's when she tells me about my great Aunt Uridel. But Aunt Uridel was really considered royalty in our family. My Aunt Uridel was married to my mom's Uncle Harry, 
the oldest of my grandfather's dozen siblings. This meant that everyone in the family respected her. But when Uncle Harry died and left most of his money to Aunt Uridel, she tithed a large amount of it to People's Temple. She would basically give large amounts of money to People's Temple. It's just that it, it was very bizarre um, for us as a family. But, um, and um, during that time, Jones Temple um, was really, it was, it was a cult in all honesty. My Aunt Uridel didn't end up going to Guyana. My family convinced her not to. But there were so many black women in the Bay Area from the Fillmore who did go. Okay, my name is Dawn Godfrey. Um, I am a well one of I am the one of the youngest survivors of uh, the People's Temple Jonestown uh, massacre incident. When I started looking up videos of People's Temple online, what I saw were churches full of black women dressed in their Sunday best, attentively listening to Jones's sermons. The Jonestown settlement was made up of nearly 50% black women. People like Dawn, her mother, and grandmother. Working class black folks joining a socialist-minded church. These were just people who envisioned, I mean, we, were, we, we, we marched with the Black Panthers um, during that time. We um, congregated with the Nation of Islam. You know, they, their church was right next to the People's Temple. And things, anything that was going on, we marched. We were there in attendance. We were, you know, civil rights activists. We were doing all this. And, you know, when Jim Jones said, okay, we need to go to a better world because this world is not going to get any better. We're going to have to, that's basically what it was. Well, this world's not going to get any better. We're going to have to go and just do our own thing. Um, they came in with open minds. Uh, you know, basically, yeah, they, you know, that's what it was. They came in with open minds, and it was just like a relief to, you could honestly be yourself. You know, when, you know, that's the, that's the attitude you got when you first came. Oh, I could be myself. Um, I can be gay. I can be whatever. Um, nobody, you know, is, is um, judging me. So it was a non-judgment, you know, environment that he gave. So that's, you know, things that people were looking for. So if we begin to understand People's Temple as part of this rising political consciousness for Black people and specifically Black women in the city who had visions for what they wanted for themselves and their futures, well, then the story of Jonestown is entirely different than how most people have come to understand it. Dawn's story starts in Indiana, where People's Temple was first founded and where her family started going to services. I was very young. I believe I was uh, maybe 10, 11. My Aunt Ida, that was her name, Ida King, she introduced my grandmother, Ruby Johnson. She told her about it. So it was just like, a, you know, hey, hey, this meeting, let's come hear this, you know, this is what's going on. So it was like a, a family thing. And then every weekend, uh, they would take the drive from Gary to Indianapolis to attend the meetings, you know, the People's Temple meetings. And they, you know, that's how it all started. Um, I used to go a lot with my grandmother. She started bringing me, my um, my siblings, and my cousins. 
Um, of course, there was a children's section, so we would sit up in the children's section, and um, I started meeting, you know, kids, and I, you know, I liked it. I'm a child. I'm not really paying attention to what's going on in the meetings. You know, it's just, hey, you know, I got these kids to play with. I love them. It's something different. It just felt right. At first, Dawn went to San Francisco for just a summer with her grandmother. They attended the temple there. The rest of her family eventually moved to California soon after. And in Dawn's memory, as a 12-year-old, people's temple was basically like summer camp. Um, because during the summer months, we had movies and we watched movies and we got the free lunches and, you know, um, the environment was fun. It was, uh, you know, like I said, it was, everybody just got along. It was just like one big, you know, happy family, so to speak, not to sound cliche, but it was. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how we, you know, that's, that's how we, uh, saw everything. That's how I saw everything. Jim Jones had strategically aligned and partnered himself with Black social movements and politics in San Francisco. He invoked Black political consciousness and socialism in his sermons at a time when many Black people were looking for a new type of Christianity. This was really appealing to Black folks in the city who had grown tired and weary of the Black church's conservatism and were looking for something new. In the eyes of many young Black people in this era, the civil rights movement of the 60s had failed them and they were looking for a new, more progressive form of political organizing. And Jones was successful. His sermons drew packed churches, and the temple had other branches in Los Angeles and Redwood Valley. It's the people's trust in Jim Jones that allowed him to establish his power through a culture of discipline, punishment, abuse, and even blackmail while the church was still in the U.S., Congregants were advised to live in a communal manner and to forfeit their personal wealth and property in the name of the church. In the mid-70s, the U.S. government and local reporters began taking an interest in People's Temple. That's when Jones told his congregants that they need to move to Jonestown, Guyana. In his words, Jonestown would be a place, quote, in a black country where our black members could live in peace, unquote. When people started to move to Jonestown, Dawn was 13 or 14. She says she couldn't wait to go with her grandmother because most of her friends had already left. So I was just like, oh, when am I going? When am I going? When am I going? It was just really to go just to be with my friends because I was missing my friends. Um, so, you know, it wasn't about, uh, I mean, they used to, we used to, they used to send the pictures to show how Jonestown was and you know, building up and how calm and every peaceful everybody was and how much they really liked it. And um, again, a no-judgment zone. We'll have our own world. We can be ourselves. We can do this. We're going to build houses. We're going to build a land. And exciting. Oh, okay, we're exciting. You know, we're going to be over there and we, you know, we, we can just do our own thing. So, yeah, it was, it, it was an excitement thing. And my grandmother pretty much... Um, she was excited as well. She was just like, oh, you know, finally we're gonna go somewhere where we don't have to face all these harsh realities of the world, you know, we live in. Um, and it was that, that's basically the, the vibe that you got. You know, you were going somewhere where there was, you could be yourself, there was no racism, there was uh, everybody living as one. So most of the black mothers that went over there were strong, of course, strong women. And they were all just looking for somewhere for their children to grow up safely, for their children to, you know, not be, 
ridiculed or uh, just a better environment for you know for the children. That you know that's what they were looking for, as well as them their, themselves. But most of them were, you know, they were. That that was the intention. They couldn't wait. You know, oh, we're gonna go somewhere. I can raise my child um, in a decent environment. I can raise my child around people that love them. You know, for years my grandmother she blamed herself. She felt you know like she let us down. And she just hurt, you know, she hurt a lot. Um, and I know she blamed herself because my mom eventually did come over. My mom came over in the last days. And my mom came over, she was, oh my God, she was elated. She was so excited. She was just like, oh my God, because my mom loved kids. And growing up, she had a daycare center. And, uh when she got over to Jonestown, when you get to Jonestown, when you got to Jonestown, you were appointed basically a job doing things that you like to do. And she loved kids. So of course she was immediately appointed to the daycare center. And she was, every day she got up and she was happy to get up. And she, you know, she really adapted to the environment, adapted to everything. And, uh, you know, I had, I had seen the change in my mother when she first got there. Because, you know, in the state she was just going through a divorce and she had just remarried. And she was trying to, you know, regroup. And I think one of the reasons why she let us go with my grandmother is because, you know, that did help her a lot to get back, you know, the life that she wanted and she was trying to build. So once she got over to Jonestown, you know, she was able to incorporate that feeling in the beginning, of course. Before things got bad, Don tells me Jonestown felt like relief. The work was hard, working out in the fields, taking security shifts at only 13 years old, but she enjoyed it. During the days, they had courses on socialism and communism, lessons on how to practice communal life. All of the objects that everybody owned became communal. Members of Jonestown were only afforded a few personal items. But Don lived in a cottage with Jim Jones's son, and in that privileged position, Don could basically get anything she needed. So at that time, I did not feel any type of way. You know, I feel I was like, okay, I'm good. You know, I do this, I can get up. I don't have to do this. If I don't want to go to school, I don't have to go to school, um, because of who I am. Not not who I was, because of who I was with. Some of Don's favorite memories from Jonestown are performing with her dance troupe that she had formed while back in San Francisco. Back home, they had opened for groups like Earth, Wind & Fire. And in Guyana, they loved to perform for locals. We did a huge performance in Georgetown at their, um, I guess you would call it a coliseum there. So it was us, the drill team. It was us, the African dancers, uh, Jim Jones Jr., Jim Jones' son, and, and John Cobb, and all his sons and a couple of other guys that they hung with the basketball team, basically. They had a um, all-male group similar to, like, the Temptations or the OJs, like that. They did, they performed. Of course, we had an awesome band, an awesome choir, and we all performed, um, you know, and that was one of the highlights. I mean, it was like, um, you know, that was just awesome. And, you know, the Guyanese people loved us. And, that you know, that was in the beginning, those, those are fond, fond memories. I mean, God, I wouldn't trade those days for nothing in the world because we were, you know, doing what we needed to do. Um, I mean, we were having fun. We were, you know, young people, we were having fun. 
Of course, Dawn's early memories of Jonestown are not the whole story. Because of her close relationship with Jim Jones's son, things were somewhat easier for her. For most people in the settlement, the chores and work were brutal. People often worked six days a week to feed and shelter the nearly a thousand people at the settlement. Punishment was often public amidst the congregation. It was intentionally harsh and humiliating. And there would be these late night meetings and sermons called White Nights, which would eventually turn into rehearsals for mass suicide to test the congregation's loyalty to Jim Jones. Dawn was there when they started doing rehearsals for the mass suicide at Jonestown. And that's when things got bad, really bad. Black people were abused and manipulated in the lead up to the massacre. And when Dawn would be in these rehearsals for the White Nights, all she could think of were all the important life events that she would miss out on. Things like her prom and her high school graduation. This is the story of Jonestown that we do know. But for a moment, I just want to sit and think about the visions of socialist utopia that the black women and girls at Jonestown carried with them. Of the possibility and imagination that lived inside of them. And what it could have been if they had been the ones in charge. When I look at pictures of women and girls who lived in Jonestown, I see that possibility. I mourn for it. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, bringing you the Socialism Conference. No one is coming to save us but us. Grassroots movements for social change confront a critical juncture today. We need visionary politics, collective strategy, and compassionate communities now more than ever. In a moment of political uncertainty, the Socialism Conference, this September 1st through 4th in Chicago, will once again be a vital gathering space for today's left. At Socialism 2023, join thousands of activists, organizers, abolitionists, and socialists to learn from each other and from history, assess ongoing struggles, build community, and experience the energy of in-person gatherings. Featured speakers at Socialism 2023 will include Naomi Klein, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, Harsha Walia, Kelly Hayes, Dina Gilio Whitaker, Bettina Love, Sophie Lewis, Malcolm Harris, Ilya Budreitskis, and many, many more. I will also, once again, be speaking at the Socialism Conference doing a live dig. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register now. Register before July 7th for the early bird discounted rate. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin. 
all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, digjacobin, all lowercase. On one of the online memorials dedicated to the people who died in Jonestown, I started scrolling through photos of the people who were there. Beautiful faces of mostly black women, children, and men, with some white folks sprinkled throughout. One photo made me stop, of a woman named Claudia Jo Norris Bouquet. In her picture, Claudia looked pretty young, maybe a junior or senior in high school. Who knows when these pictures of her were taken? I was drawn to this photo of her because she looked like someone right on the cusp of adulthood, older than Dawn would have been. And she was spending this formative time of her life and becoming who she was while at Jonestown. I couldn't help but wonder what she must have been thinking and feeling during her years living there. There are lots of recordings from Jonestown. Some of them are just meant to document their time there. But the people of Jonestown also often use radio to communicate with outposts in Georgetown, Guyana. Some of these recordings were meant to be sent back to the U.S. to assure the government and other agencies that the people at Jonestown had no interest in coming back to the U.S. My name is Chris Rosenko. I'm a violent revolutionary and I'd like to overthrow the government. I have arms and I have a plan and I'd like to do it now. My name is Troy C. Bradford. Repeat, I'm a violent revolutionary. My name is Tracy Bradford. I'm a, a revolutionary. I like to throw the plans of the government right now. And my name is Benny Bradford. I'm a revolutionary. I like to throw the for this government right now. Revolutionary. My name is Stelman Jackson. I'm a violent revolutionary. I would like to overthrow this country tonight. I keep my weapons and I am ready at any time. Some of the people seem hesitant, not necessarily taking themselves seriously when describing themselves as violent revolutionaries who want to overthrow the country. But Claudia's voice is different. My name is Claudia Norris, and I'm a violent revolutionary, and I would like to overthrow this country right now. Her voice is so much smoother and deeper than I imagined. Not at all a girl, but a woman sure of herself that came to this place because she believed in something better. In some ways, I don't completely know what to make of all my thoughts and feelings about Jonestown. There's the tension between how utopic things could have been and how horrible and dark they became. And I mean, was it a cult? I feel hesitant to call the visions of socialist-minded Black women delusional or untethered. And I don't want to give any more credit or attention to the man who tainted their visions or manipulated their agency. And I was unaware that People's Temple embraced Black radical traditions and was predominantly African-American, predominantly African-American female. It was just something that had never been foisted 
into the mainstream and still is um, very underexposed with regard to Black women's involvement and investment in that movement. This is Akibu Hutchinson. She is an author and educator based in LA. She's interested in themes of Black secularism. And just like most people at first, she didn't know anything about Black women's involvement in People's Temple until she started really researching the topic for herself. So when I saw the archival footage of Black women testifying in the church, Black women being on the forefront of social change as a result of that uh, church involvement, as a result, obviously, of their involvement in other social movements, civil rights movement, the Black Power movements that were emergent during that period, that really intrigued me because the dominant refrain that we as Black women have gotten about Jonestown is that these were um, a bunch of bug-eyed acolytes and that they had no agency, they had no self-determination, that they just jumped up and totally ditched their communities and their families and ran over to this, this crazy, chaotic third world country with no real impetus or, or catalyst. And that was deeply problematic given what I know and most of us know about Black women and, and Black women being very invested in lifting up the community, in providing safe spaces, and being not just caregivers and caretakers, but movers and shakers when it comes to socioeconomic sustainability. Sakivu wrote a book called White Nights, Black Paradise. It's a novel that follows the story of three fictionalized Black women who navigate all the challenges of People's Temple and Jonestown. And I wanted to highlight the, the multiple trajectories of folks that were involved in People's Temple, how you have people coming from all kinds of walks of life, being vilified within the whole um, church gulag, really, the church regime that had a lot of violence, a lot of abuse, uh, a, a lot of vilification, again, of folks that, that raised questions about what was going down with the money, what was going down with property. The church would basically um, seize people's property in order to, to fund its mission to Jonestown, Guyana. And you had whole generations that were deeding their property um, to the church, you know, under the threat of violence, under the threat of um, being cast out or, you know, having their loved ones uh, be intimidated and interrogated. So there was this whole culture of terror and fear that existed in the church that compelled folks to deed their property, specifically African-American women, um, to give up their paycheck, to, to give up their welfare checks, their social security checks, um, other forms of benefits, and tithe it to the church, mm. sometimes to the tune of, of 20, 30, 40% of their incomes being tithed to the church. And so that's how Black women became effectively the socioeconomic backbone. What new insights do we have to gain about People's Temple and Jonestown by focusing specifically on the perspectives of Black women? 
Well, I think that we need to contextualize those perspectives vis-a-vis -vis what was transpiring during that era in the fact that Black women, as I stated at the outset of this interview, didn't just jump up and decide to join People's Temple. They were compelled to join People's Temple because of the specific conditions of socioeconomic, racial, and, and gender deprivation and disparity that existed in San Francisco, LA, and a number of the other impacted communities that members came from. That you had a historical moment where Black folks were being widely dispossessed from their homes in the Fillmore District community to the point where the legacy of that dispossession is that very few Black folks can afford to own homes. I think that, that there has been a wholesale effort to decontextualize and um, to fetishize Jonestown as an outlier, that this is something that it was just so antithetical to American faith traditions that we cannot even reconcile it. In talking with Sikivu, I couldn't help but think about the ripple effects of People's Temple, how it impacts our contemporary moment and what we can take away from an event like Jonestown. It's also important with regard to Black women because Black women are among the most, if not the most, religious communities in the U.S. That 87% of us, according to a study that was done by the, the Kaiser Family Foundation in the Washington Post, are religiously identified, um, are faith-based, that we consult the Bible disproportionately, we believe in miracles disproportionately, we pray disproportionately, that actually, according to many surveys, that faith is the absolute bedrock for Black women, and that that supersedes allegiance to family, allegiance to partners, allegiance to children. And that's problematic for me uh, because of the cost to Black women. And certainly, People's Temple in Jonestown is emblematic of that cost, that we are still in the 21st century grappling with the highest rates of domestic and sexual violence, the highest rates of income inequality, the highest rates of, of push out and criminalization for black girls. And on the other hand, we have the highest rates of consuming and believing faith traditions that do not serve us, that are in many instances predatory um, on black women's capital and black women's labor. Dawn managed to escape Jonestown. She was in Georgetown, Guyana's capital, getting dental work with her grandma, leading up to the mass suicide. And for months, every time she would try to go back to Jonestown, she would somehow miss her transportation. Little strings of mistakes that would ultimately save her life. In talking to Dawn, I'm really surprised and impressed by how she's able to disentangle the good and the bad in Jonestown. She's able to hold on to the memories of what Jonestown could have been, even though she ended up losing most of her family. 
just being our ages, you know, talking to each other, laughing, playing um, volleyball. We would play volleyball. We would play uh, basketball, dodgeball. Just those memories, you know, that, that those are the things that I'm like, wow, you know, I really, really miss. And when I see the bad things, I'm like, you know, I always remember the good. I said, well, you know, we did have fun. Um, we did. There were times when, you know, we were just like, uh, it was just like, hey, we in this world, we would, you know, at night especially, we would just hang out, listen to music, dance. I wish black women in Jonestown had gotten back what they had put in, in their labor, in their money, in their vision that carried people's temple forward. It's their world that I want to live in. And sending this transmission off to who knows where, wherever you're listening, that's what I'm hoping for. Claudia Norris, and I'm a violent revolutionary, and I would like to overthrow this country right now. Miss Claudia Norris, and I'm a violent revolutionary. Claudia Norris, and I'm a violent revolutionary. I'm a violent revolutionary, and I would like to overthrow this country right now. That was Babette Thomas. They're a radio producer, artist, and researcher. You can find more about their work on their website. Be sure to check out Visions of Black Futurity, a podcast they made about the history of the Black arts movement in the Bay Area. Special thanks to Don Godfrey, Sakivu Hutchinson, and to the Jonestown Institute for sharing their archival recordings. The Dig Presents is produced and edited by Liza Yeager and Mitchell Johnson. Our artwork is by Celia Nagalis. This episode was fact-checked by Alan Dean. Thanks also to the rest of the Dig team. Alex Lewis, Jackson Roche, Tamuz Frankel, Sylvia Atwood, Theoria Frankos, and Ben Maybe, and to our partners at Jacobin. We hope you liked this episode of The Dig Presents. We will publish another documentary story around this time next month. Please tell us what you thought about the story. If you liked it, do share it with a friend or on social media with strangers. We are so excited about The Dig Presents and all of the stories that we're working on, and we really, really want people to hear them. And last but not least, please contribute at patreon.com slash the dig.